Most of us have no idea what it's like to go to war, let alone what it's like to come home from war and try to resume normal life. For the most part, the, the act of war is about destruction. So there's something to be said about building soil and cultivating crops. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories about the changing American South through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, radio producer Alex Blair brings us a story of war and Southern agriculture and a pair of siblings seeking to heal one with the other. This is the story of two brothers. At first, it might seem like their stories are very similar. And at the surface, that would be true. But once you get to know them, once you dig in, you'll see that they're trying to overcome their past and do good work in the world in very different ways. And yet, both end up with farming. Shoo, collards. Lettuce, spinach, cilantro. It's late January, and I'm standing in a greenhouse at St. Catherine's College in Springfield, Kentucky, with Mike Lewis. He's planting seeds into seed trays. Mike has just turned 40, but he's in college for the first time studying agriculture. It's strange to think that I've got 19- and 20-year-old kids as my peers now, but um, I certainly feel like they have a lot to teach me because I've, I've lost a lot of that optimism and a lot of that youthful exuberance. Mike's in a camo baseball hat and has a thick, dark beard. He looks like a farmer or a man of the outdoors. His hands are workman hands, and when I ask him, how would you describe yourself, he says, Handsome. (laughs) Mike's had a winding road to get him to this greenhouse. He grew up in Maine and didn't see a lot of opportunities ahead of him as a teenager. He wasn't a great student, and though he was a good athlete, no one was lining up to recruit him. So he turned to the military. Well, I shipped off a few days before my 17th birthday. Mike was stationed with the Old Guard, also known as the 3rd Infantry, in Washington, D.C. He was assigned to the casket team, which means he received bodies coming back from war and organized the funerals. He worked with four to five bodies a day, and he worked there for four years. I guess before I could even legally drink, I was an alcoholic. You know, looking back now, just trying to, you know, dealing with, you know, doing four or five funerals a day for, for a number of years can, can grate on you. Though Mike was not in combat and never filed an official claim, he did receive treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, because of the constant daily reminders of death and war and loss. When he left the old guard, he was not in a good place. So I, you know, I got out of the military and I didn't... Uh, I got in a little bit of trouble because I still had my issues from the military. Uh, And I went back to Maine and I kind of stumbled around for a long time, not doing much. You know, dead-end jobs, bartending, waiting tables, mowing lawns. And eventually that rambling led Mike into what, to me, seeing him now, is one of the strangest jobs I could imagine him in. A late-night TV salesman. Sold uh, weight loss pills and penis pills and things like that over the late-night infomercials and uh, made quite a bit of money selling uh, perfection to people over the phone. Mike did this for a while. He was really good at it. Like he said, he made a lot of money. And then he became a mortgage broker, and he made even more money. You know, you would think on the surface I should have been pretty happy with everything. I had a nice house. 
You know, I had, a, I had a view of the ocean. I had a boat, a couple cars. But when Mike turned 30, he started feeling an emptiness, like he hadn't quite earned what he had. Though, of course, he put in the hours, he felt like it was wrong for him, who had struggled so much after the military, to be so much more successful than his friends who had worked hard in their 20s. You know, I, it just kind of, I, I started thinking, I guess, you know, you, what have I done? What have I done for anybody other than me? Would I be proud of who I was? And I think that was, um, it still is. I mean, that's a very hard thing for me to look at that and say, oh, and I'm still not proud of who I am. I still think I have a lot to do. So I, th I think for me, it was maybe about making amends for what the things that I felt I had, had done. And so one day, the way it happens in movies but rarely happens in real life, Mike walked out. He left all that money, all that stuff. Forget this. I'm, I'm done. And I almost literally I got rid of everything. He packed up his car and headed towards a friend in Arizona. Mike stopped in Kentucky to visit his parents, who had moved there. And he met a girl. A girl he liked a lot. She thought it'd be sexy if I was a farmer, so here we are. Mike took a summer internship, trying to impress this girl who would later become his wife. And he found that he liked farming a lot. Though it wasn't part of his game plan, there was a hint farming might be good for him back in Maine, in one of those random jobs he took after the military. He worked for a short while as an arborist, I think it was being outdoors and being connected to, to something and to, you know, when you're working with plants there or trees, they're, you know, they're alive and they weren't really very judgmental, you know, and you got to take care of them, right? I mean, that was the bulk of, of the work was taking care of things and nurturing things and making sure they lived. So um, I guess maybe that was, was kind of it, you know, I buried things for so long that didn't sprout up, maybe I wanted to to deal with something that when you buried it, it, it sprouted and lived. Mike kept farming after the internship. He and his wife had a baby, and they started trying to sell the extra food they grew. That was when Mike learned how hard it is to be a small-scale farmer, trying to get your food out to other people. That first fall, I, I cut several pounds of really nice organic salad mix, and I walked into my local elementary school and I said, hey, I've got this for you, would you buy it? And um, they looked at me like I was uh, a Martian with six heads. The school handed Mike 16 pages of paperwork to fill out before they could even consider buying his greens. Again, in my naivety, I thought, well, I just figured out everything that's wrong with this country. We can't, <laughs> we can't even eat good food without 16 pages of paperwork. Mike was frustrated and fired up. He wasn't content to fill out paperwork and get on with it. He felt like if this was happening to him, then it was happening to other small-scale farmers, and he wanted to do something about it. So at first it was personal, and then it became, I say this half in jest, but it's not. This is a national security issue. I mean, the health and well-being of our population is the most important national security issue we have right now. Mike began to work with organizations that advocate for small farmers in rural communities. He began teaching farming to other people. And as Mike was doing this work, he came across a statistic that said over a million veterans and active duty military personnel are on food stamps. I, it just struck me as, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so that was a, an aha moment for me. So at that time, I just, you know, sort of took it on myself that, well, we're gonna, we're gonna go teach veterans how to 
grow food and we started our first community garden in 2012. To fill the disconnect he saw between veterans and food, Mike created his own nonprofit. It's called Growing Warriors and it's now in three states, Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. Mike feels that Growing Warriors is a solution to what he calls the farm crisis that's happening in rural America. According to the EPA, less than 1% of the United States population are farmers. And the average age of a farmer right now is 58 years old. We've got a serious lack of farmers in the United States. Meanwhile, half of all veterans come from rural America. And Mike made the connection. Soldiers that want to be farmers should be. These are the hardest working, most dedicated people that we have. And then you look at the crisis of the land that we have in this country and you think, who's going to fix this? The people that defended it. Let's let them come home and rebuild it now. And, you know, you need to have those qualities now if you're going to, I mean, you need to have, you need to be a soldier. If you want to be a farmer today, you've got to be a soldier, whether it's, a, whether it's literally or figuratively, you have to be able to soldier on. Now the idea of recent veterans working in agriculture has been around for a little while. They were written into last year's farm bill, and there's even a food label called Homegrown by Heroes, which Mike helped create, that identifies food grown by veterans. But Mike says a lot of what he's seen out there to help veterans farm is just a lot of flash, a lot of startup assistance, and then no follow-through. He's seen a growing problem in veterans getting loans and land, but no support in the hard work of farming. I certainly love the idea of veterans being farmers, but I don't love the idea of veterans being indebted farmers with no hope of getting out from under that debt. I, I worry that the farmer-veteran concept is kind of being romanticized to the, to the extent that it's almost a detriment. And so Mike is trying to be different than what he's seen. That's why his work focuses on outreach and education, teaching veterans to farm, not just giving them a loan, but setting up a long-term system of support and exchange. This fire in Mike's belly was born from his own struggle with trying to be a farmer. But there's also a key part of it that has to do with his brother, Fred. For that same year that Mike founded Growing Warriors, Fred came home from war. He'd done a number of tours. Um, had been shot in the back of his uh, helmet in, on his last tour and was diagnosed with a, a traumatic brain injury. And he lived around us and the family and with us on the farm. And not recognizing him was, it was a difficult thing for me, having this image of your, your brother and, uh, and seeing this new person that had been gone for eight years and, and comes home with, you know, different, it's just a different person. So that, that was a struggle, and after a while, he of course came down and uh, would be helping me in the garden, and uh, the first couple of times I just dreaded it, because it, it was difficult. Not that he was difficult, but it was difficult for me to be in that situation uh, with someone that I didn't recognize, that I had known for, for so long. And then I just remembered maybe the fourth or fifth time he had been down there, I you know, I was, just four, I just looked up and I, for the first time, I think in uh, about a year and a half, I kind of recognized him. And so that was the point that we really started focusing on, well, what are the therapeutic values of this? Coming up, the other Lewis brother, his experience at war, and how that translates into a very different appreciation for farming than Mike's. That's ahead 
But first... Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy said hey. Growing up in the Mississippi Delta, Harry Simmons looked forward to being a farmer. Little did he know that what he'd end up farming would be fish. Harry started out with more traditional crops, cotton and soybeans. But by the late 1970s, he began to think about something new, catfish. Soon Harry began to replace his fields with ponds filled by aquifers 100 feet below the rich alluvial soil of the delta. And he never looked back. Now three generations of the family are involved, including Harry's daughter Katie, a trained chef. You can learn more about their Mississippi catfish farm at SimmonsCatfish.com. Now back to Alex Blair and the story of the Lewis brothers. When I go to meet Mike's younger brother, Fred, the Kentucky sky is thick with gray clouds. I drive down a dirt road passing an old cabin under repair, reaching Fred's house and a big gray barn. Two calves on the hillside graze against skinny barren trees. There are pigs in the distance on a hilltop. It's morning, and Fred has already been up for hours, taking care of farm chores and taking care of his animals. Now he's on to chickens. These are the spoiled ladies. Why are they spoiled? Well, they get moved once a week. They get two gallons of milk a day, uh, all the feed they need, heat lamps 24 hours a day, and fresh hay about every four or five days. No. You can tell by their beards that Mike and Fred are related. Fred looks a bit like... Santa Claus when he was 35. <laughs> Thinner. <laughs> um, I, I, the glorious beard is what I get a lot. I put a lot of time into it. I mean, it keeps me warm. It's so cold. Fred lives on the farm with his seven-year-old daughter, Emma, whom he's homeschooling. What's up, Emma? Take these eggs inside for me? Fred's wife has an off-farm job as a high school teacher about 45 minutes away, and that's where their other daughter goes to school as well. Fred's parents live a mile up the road, and his dad is here this morning. We sit on the couch, and Fred begins to talk, with Emma beside him and his dad on another couch. He says he never wanted to join the military, but he was a high school exchange student in Norway and fell in love with languages. And the military recruiter told him he could work as a translator and then go to college. So he joined, thinking he'd be a Norwegian translator. That's not what happened. Uh, so that kind of tricked me. I got in the army and found out I was a Korean linguist. <laughs> so I had to go learn Korean. Uh, I didn't even know where Korea was. So I learned Korean and stayed in the army for about seven years as a Korean linguist and realized that that wasn't enough. Then I went special forces uh, right after 9-11. Fred became a senior medic with the special forces in Afghanistan. I felt angry that uh, a lot of people died and I felt like the job I was doing wasn't serving as well as I could. So I knew I was in good shape and that I had a lot of energy. <laughs> and if I could use that energy to better the country, I would do that. So I just felt like the other jobs in the military weren't 
weren't enough. I wanted to do something good. <laughs> Emma, you need to be fun. You probably missed that, but Emma just leaned over to Fred and whispered, and you got shot in the head. It was a, there was a, a large firefight. We were caught, we were kind of bat, pinned down a little bit. And um, I took a round to the helmet that to me at the time was like somebody had hit me with a baseball bat, like with a helmet on, that's not that big of a deal. You get back up from a lot worse things to, in, my, in my mind at the time. Uh, so I, I, I was knocked unconscious for a little bit. Well, was fine after that and just kind of felt dazed a little bit. Um, it was the months after that that things started getting worse and it was actually when I got out of the military and started slowing down that I started having seizures and migraines. Fred was prescribed five different kinds of medication and that translated to taking 20 pills a day. Because his memory wasn't so good anymore, sometimes he'd forget if he had already taken his pill or not and he'd almost overdose. The transition from going at 90 miles an hour to going to zero I, you can't really prepare somebody for that. You can't really, you can't really think about what's going to happen. You can't game plan it. It's a, it's like you hit a wall, and a lot of guys hit that wall and stay hitting that wall and don't find a way to get over that wall. But I had a good family, I had a good support unit, I had a wife that was willing to tell me I was being the way I was being and not just be afraid or weirded out, and was able to get over the wall. But it was, it was farming that played a big, big part in that. Working in the garden, Fred began to recover himself. It was a magical fit for me, kind of. I mean, it was just perfect. It's the same, to me, it's the same feeling. That besides a little bit of aggression that I don't get to do on the farm, it's pretty much the same thing. At first, Fred didn't recognize that farming was his path. He taught special forces training school in North Carolina, and he taught high school, too. And then his father was diagnosed with cancer, and the family moved to Kentucky to be closer. Fred began agriculture classes. He realized then that farming was what he needed. It's easy, it's a service. That's the one word, farming is service. You're serving yourself, you're serving your family, you're serving your community, you're serving the restaurant down the road, you're, you know, you're serving everybody. And it's just, I mean, it's, you're feeling the rewards from what you're doing. And that's, military guys are mission-oriented, give me a task. When that task is done, let's talk about it, and let's do the next task after that. And that's, that's what farming is. And the harder you push, the better it is at the end. After some time farming, Fred decided to quit taking the medication he was on. He had lost faith in the traditional programs available to him through the VA. There's no programs available for somebody that doesn't, like for me, I get nothing out of the VA. I go to the psychiatrist and I talk to the psychiatrist. I did it for years and um, was on all kinds of medication. One day I woke up, decided to come off all everything at once, dumped them all down the toilet, never went back to the VA. And over that time period when I was coming off the medication, I realized I'd never healed once. All I had done was pushed everything off to the side with medication. And there was never a program that was available to me to help me heal. It was this that I healed myself, and no one ever told me about it. <laughs> it was just blind luck. I fell into it because of the way my life progressed. And if that works for me, it will work for other people. And there's just there needs to be availability. Quitting medications cold turkey is not something everyone or even most people should try. Fred says it worked for him. He had the support from his family. He found purpose in his farm. And now he wants to share what worked for him with other veterans. That's the reason he's fixing up the old cabin. Once this farm is up and running, 
it's really going to be a, a training ground for veterans to come and learn. We're, we're even going to build a classroom in the, in the cabin and have overnight lofts above so people can come and stay. We want people to be here. Um, we've, we've had veterans coming here for probably four or five months. They come and stay for a week, help us work, hear about what we're doing, decide if it's something they want to be part of, and it's not that difficult if you have support. And we're going to be hopefully able to support people. One of my best friends is on his, his 10th deployment right now. And all he tells me is, I'm just done. I'm done, what am I gonna do when I get out? I can't lift, I can't. My body's broken, my mind's broken, I'm exhausted. Where am I gonna go? Fred wants to make this farm the place where people like his friend can go. A gathering place for veterans. He speaks of wanting to make cheese and creating a large vegetable garden with enough food for 50 people through a CSA. He calls this farm Healing Ground Farms. Now technically he owns it with Mike, but the brothers don't actually work together so well. Both have strong opinions, strong leadership, and as often happens in families, sometimes it's harder to work with blood than with strangers. There are more veterans in the South than any other region in the States. And while the South has a rich agricultural history, almost 50,000 farms were lost between the years 2007 to 2012. What if the Lewis brothers succeed in their different ways of helping soldiers to become farmers? What if the South could have a new landscape of men and women returning from war to take on the hard work of growing food? It's not simple, but it's a start. Led by two brothers, their work equally valuable. Mike, the external, outward energy. The easiest way that you can think a veteran now is just eat some good food that he grew because their story is now told in food. And Fred, rooting himself to the land, working from within, calling people to him. I fought overseas and now I kind of feel like I'm fighting on my own soil. Alex Blair is a radio producer and filmmaker who's just moved to California after many years living in North Carolina. She comes from a family of farmers and veterans. Alex also has a documentary film about this topic in the works, which you can check out at farmerveteran.com. Music for this episode was by Marissa Anderson, Ignatz, The Restoned, James Baxter, and Computer vs. Banjo for Diagram Collective. We had help selecting it from Travis Lux. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Coming up, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first, there's the sponsorship music again, and today I just want to illustrate for you what kind of organization the Southern Foodways Alliance is. A few years ago, they put together a list of their core values, as nonprofits do. There's lots of good stuff on that list, from a dedication to singing the unsung to working towards the greater good. But there's also a section that proudly proclaims, we are offbeat. We're irreverent, it says. We once constructed a bacon tree draped with slices of cured pork belly. We value funk. Against the good advice of a number of folks, we staged a field trip dinner in a haunted jailhouse. These sound like the kind of people I want to hang out with. You can support the good work of the Southern Foodways Alliance from the inspiring to the irreverent by becoming a member. Learn more on our website, southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, legal battles over pie? People would come in and say, do you all have derby pie? And we'd have to say, no, we do not. And they'd say, uh, oh, chocolate chip pecan pie, isn't that derby pie? 
and we'd have to say, no, it's not. <laughs> you definitely want to stay tuned for that one, for the love of pie. As always, we'd love your ratings and reviews on iTunes. Guaranteed, you will make my day if you write us one. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. You're listening to Gravy. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs> <laughs>